This paid podcast is a partnership between Slate Studios, American Airlines, British Airways, and Visit Britain. I travel for discovery. I travel because there's still so much to see. To meet different kinds of people. And that's what I love about walking around old cities. That's why I travel. It gives you permission to be curious. From American Airlines, British Airways, and Visit Britain. This is I Travel For, a series about adventure. Oh my God. <laughs> curiosity. How in God's name did you find all these old recipes? And wonder. You know so much about this place, it's amazing. I'm Hattie Pearson, a DJ and radio presenter living and working in Manchester, England. In every episode, we follow an American traveler as they traverse Great Britain. But here's the twist. They didn't plan their own trips. We did. The locals. Let's hear all about it. I'm really excited to meet the other producers. Hey, so good to meet nice you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you excited? I'm so excited. I feel like someone has planned a honeymoon for me. And so I'm really intrigued to find out, like, what do locals do for nature? For our third adventurer in Great Britain, we found Nora Boydell. Whether it's harvesting oysters on a raft in the Pacific or living in a barn on a Swiss mountainside... Nora loves to get off the beaten path, so it made sense that she would want to explore the outdoors. Despite our reputation for rainy weather, we Brits are rambling outside every chance we get. That's the countryside I wanted Nora to experience. So we had her start up in the Yorkshire countryside in northern England. Hello from Yorkshire. My name's Trisha Merrington. Nora, I would love to recommend our diverse and rare landscape that is the Yorkshire Moors. However, it's important not to be misguided by its beauty. I couldn't think of anyone better than Chris Goddard to show Nora around our moorland. Chris is a cartographer and has published fantastic walking books. Make sure you take water, food, walking boots, map and compass, and extra clothing. So private road, is this where we're going? So that just means you can't drive on it. It's a public footpath as well. And once we hit the moor at the top of here, we can go anywhere. I'm outdoorsy in that I like hiking and trees. I'll pick up insects and I've worked on some farms. But my love for nature is complicated. I've never trekked across wild landscapes on my own, even though I want to, because I worry that my sense of direction could be better. And there's that primal fear of getting lost. The one thing I know about Chris Goddard is that he's very good at not getting lost. He's been drawing maps since he was a kid. Chris has sturdy hiking boots and blonde dreadlocks. We follow his dog Alfie up a gravel path and then the view opens up to the moors of West Yorkshire. This landscape was made famous by Sherlock Holmes stories and the novel Wuthering Heights. Because what we are looking at out here is like the biggest wilderness that we have in this part of the world. 
There's already this moodiness to the moors, maybe because it's windy and threatening to rain, or it could be the color of the rolling hills, dark purple heather underscored by black peat, a partially decayed vegetation. It looks empty, but it's not. When you've got this sort of empty space, any rocks in it become interesting, and are there stories in them? Some of them might have incredible markings, prehistoric markings. Almost like maps, but maps of the heavens, maps of what, no one knows. Chris unfolds one of his maps. Chris draws every corner, stone, and tree with incredible detail. I'm not an artist. What? I mean, this looks like you're an artist to me. Oh, Alfie, stay. You stay. So we're just like walking right through these pastures for sheep. In America, I would never go up to a gate in front of a farm and open it. We hike through pale green grasses, past old rock walls. Then we switch our footing to a worn down sandstone path. We're actually walking on old trade routes where people used to transport salt, wool, and iron on ponies. I can't believe we're walking on paths that were here in the Middle Ages. Yeah, whereas if you're on the roads, the, you know, that's a completely different surface from, from what it would have been. I think, I think it's much easier to, to lose yourself in history in this landscape. After an hour, we've made our way up a hill into a famous abandoned farmhouse, Top Withens. It's said to be the inspiration for Emily Bronte when she wrote Wuthering Heights. There are a dozen people here on a sort of Bronte pilgrimage. Anyone can follow the well-marked trail to the farmhouse. There are even some signs in Mandarin. But beyond that, the moors look a little intimidating. Back when the Bronte sisters were writing... This was sort of the end of the world. The last building on this side of the hills, there's nothing beyond this. The route goes over for many miles over. And we should probably go off and have a look okay. at some quieter spots. A half mile beyond the Bronte farmhouse, there's not a building or person in sight. We're suddenly on a small path, headed right out into, into the, the wild beyonds here. This is called Stanbury Bog out here, um, which you don't want to try and cross. This part of the path does feel much um, rougher and... Oh, gross. gross! Oh, like five of them. Yeah. Chris's eyes dart across the landscape, following the bird's path. We clamber up a strange configuration of huge rocks. Sitting up on them, we can see for miles. When Chris is mapping out a new route, he looks for signs of animals that have made the journey first. So you can see here there's a few little tracks through the heather. Some of them will just be sheep tracks that will just run out in a, in a few yards, but other ones might persist. And seeing if there's any way across this, this, this wilderness. He also looks for small stones sticking up out of the grass, peels the vegetation back, and sometimes finds them attached to old walls with initials in them. These are boundary stones, and they served as barriers between old enemies in the 1400s. I wish I could see the landscape the way that he does. Like, we all see the landscape differently. If I draw a map, it's going to be different from yours, because we all see different things. So draw your map, I guess, or, you know, look for your own, the things that jump out to you in the landscape. Attention to detail, but your own detail. We close our eyes and start to make what Chris calls an audio map by listing off the sounds around us. Birds, a plane, a rustling in the bush, the wind. You can hear different gusts through the rocks. I would have just said wind, but now that you pointed out, there's like at least three different wind sounds within the wind sound. Yeah. 
As we hike back, I'm struck by Chris's patience with the terrain. Looking at the moors from his perspective, I wonder if map making might be a matter of presence more than anything, of taking the time to sit with all the details that my brain is already noticing, that maybe spatial orientation isn't something you're born with or without, or a skill I need to strain to master as much as something I can relax into. It's, it's just laid out before you on the moors. You can make any map of it, you can notice what you will. We've been out for three hours, and still, there's so much ground to cover on the one map that Chris showed me when we started. You could walk all the footpaths in the country, and you may never do them in your lifetime. That is cool, because it's not that big a country. No, no it really isn't. And now, a word from British Airways. If you're thinking about visiting London or beyond, you're probably looking to soak in the true British experience. The British Airways quintessentially British service style will make you feel like you're in the UK from the moment you board the plane. And they've partnered with the best British brands out there to deliver that British style they're known for. Check it out at BA.com. I make my six-hour journey from West Yorkshire to Scotland on a series of trains, starting with an old-fashioned steam train. The views keep getting wider and the hills steeper as we move north. Hello, my name is Jan. My local recommendation is Drumlanrig Castle. It's this majestic building. It sits perched on this 90,000-acre estate, and it is just like going back in time. This train is for Dumfries. At Dumfries, I hop in the cab of a local driver. He remembers driving Princess Diana through this area back in the 90s. How do I say this name of this castle? I keep trying and feeling. Drumlandrig Castle. Drum. 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 Landrig. Drum Landrig Castle. When you're not working, what do you do for fun around here? Just go long walks round about the lochs and the countryside. I've heard there's a, a law here called the right to roam. Yes, I. You can go anywhere at all. We get to the castle grounds, and there are more trees than I've seen on my trip so far. We make our way through an old forest and then turn onto a mile-long avenue that was built for a visit from Queen Victoria, although she ended up canceling at the last minute. I'm impressed anyway. The castle ahead is elegant and austere, except for its soft pink sandstone. I count at least 20 turrets, and that's just from one side. Have a good day. You too. Yes, I. Okay, bye. Bye. I walk to the far side of the castle in the spinning rain and follow a cobblestone path to what used to be the stables. But instead of horses, there's a bike shop, an oily mom-and-pop-style bike shop that you might find on a city corner. This is the place I came here to find. Hi, I'm Rick Alsop, and I have the bike shop here at Drumlanrig Castle and I live not far from the castle either. And you're sending me out on a mountain bike today. Absolutely. I love cycling, and I figure I'll ride around a little, get a nice view of the countryside. And how did you get into this? I've been cycling as, for a long time and making jumps as a kid and stuff like that, and used to, in my suit and tie job, look out in my window at the sunsets on the forest and go, I wish I was there. I dropped that job and started Rick's Bike Shed about 20... Oh, it would be 33, 
I don't even know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> Timeless. It's my birthday today. I'm 52. <laughs> it's your birthday? <laughs> yes. Today? I know how old I am. Yeah, yeah. So Happy my, birthday. As Rick birthday, adjusts my birthday. bike, it's starting to sink in that road biking, which is what I've done, is not quite the same as what I'm getting myself into here. Scotland is right up there as far as mountain biking is concerned. We have some absolutely awesome access legislation, which means you can ride and walk just about anywhere. The Blue Trail here is fine for fit, adventurous folk because there's a bit of climbing and some wiggly bits of trail as well. Do you think I can do this? I, I mean, I don't know what to expect out there. Uh, well, we're not going to send you out on the Black Trail, which would be ambitious. That would be cruel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're going to. calves aren't that big. Oh, it's nothing to do with the calves. It's all technique. Um, anything else I should look out for out there? Uh, well, there aren't any bears, but there are red squirrels. Watch out for them, yeah. What are they going to do to me? They throw a big nut at you. <laughs> I don't there you go. Thank so you. Should I reach that better? Okay. Great. I set off with my new bike, and at the last minute, Rick insists on coming with me, maybe sensing my trepidation. We take the first hill on a lower gear than I even knew existed, and it is rough. I instantly regret the lunch I had, a plate of the richest Scottish food you can imagine. Haggis, blood sausage, potato scones. Okay, so I'm already out of breath and we've been biking for five minutes, which is embarrassing. At least you didn't stop and push. <laughs> so where are we standing right now? This is Coldstream Loch. Loch, Loch, <laughs> not Loch. Not Loch, no Loch. <laughs> the chances are one of the three or four fish that I've trained all winter will leap out of the water. And this is, oh, there we go. Wow, that was cool. We've just seen a fish jump clean out of the water. Another one just left. Yep, so there you go. And uh, of course what I do is just hang a, hang a little bit of cheese on a small bit of wire and the fish jump out when I whistle. <laughs> Actually, no, no. <laughs> so are they just jumping here all the time? They jump anyway. <laughs> Even in the we get back on our bikes and thankfully for me, the steepest incline is out of our way but I'm not quite prepared for the downhill. Oh, uh -oh. Is it a squealer too? <laughs> I squealed and it's not a big hill. I'm making it sound big, it's not big. No, not, it, is that it, even it, a hill? Yeah. Well, uh, a, a roll off, yeah, a little a roll bank. off. A wee bank. <laughs> a wee bank. We descend into the forest. Okay, right. Moss and vines are thriving here. Rick hops off his bike and peels back a layer of moss to reveal enormous edible chanterelle mushrooms. Look at that. Wow, that's huge. It starts raining, which is a relief after our workout. Rick starts breaking down the art of mountain biking to brace me for what's ahead. It's going to be more than a wee bank. To simplify it, he tells me to sit like a proud gorilla. Gorilla, gorilla. Well, I feel like I'm on a crazy roller coaster, Rick is gliding over the trail with ease. He builds these trails himself, making sure they roll naturally with the forest contours. Wow, this is very cliff. Well, we won't go down that one, because that one does have some, some steep stuff. Thank you. It's so beautiful. The we river. stop next to a beautiful gorge. I look for how much grin factor there is in something, you know? So uh, stop and look around. Don't just ride the trail. Listen to the water, listen to the birds, look for the fish jumping, just stop. In some ways, being a beginner, the positive thing is I have to stop a lot and uh -huh. it forces me to enjoy the environment. Absolutely, yeah. And that's the good thing about mountain biking. You're not in a race. It doesn't matter. What, 
the level you're at, you're getting just as much of a kick of adrenaline as I would get if I was riding as hard as I could. Everybody's pushing their own little envelope. But it's so exciting to get to go right through everything instead of avoiding all the stones and the puddles and the pebbles. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's like being a kid again though, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely, it is. it's just like being a big kid. We get back to civilization, as Rick calls it, the paved road to the castle. I realize I'm running late for a train that I have to catch. No problem, Rick says. He'll give me a lift, but only once I've had tea with his family. We ride to his house, which is dwarfed by the castle in the distance. His wife welcomes me, just as friendly as he is. I'm muddy from all the puddles in the forest, but they tell me it's nothing, just keep my shoes on. They have a big furry sheepdog and two young kids who have a lot to say about the nature around here, too. We ride it up to a bothy. Maybe Nora doesn't know what a bothy is. Do you want to tell her what a bothy is? I don't know what that is. Well, it's not like a house like this. It's just one room and you all sleep in one room. And uh, um, you have to light candles or bring torches to get lights. You can find these shelters along trails all over Scotland and anyone can stay in them for free. I'm always trying to get off the beaten path, but there's just no comparison to being invited to a family's home. Sipping my tea with Rick's family? That's an image that will stay with me. And now a word from British Airways and American Airlines. Thinking of a vacation to London or beyond? Why not cross the Atlantic on British Airways or American Airlines and discover the incredible cities they fly to? Okay, um, now the tale of Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter. Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits, and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. They lived with their mother in a sandbank under... Hey, my name's James, and I'm from Cumbria in the north of England, a county well-known for its national park, the Lake District. The lakes are still an amazing place to escape the busyness of everyday life and take a moment to realise just how beautiful the UK can be. Have fun, Nora. On my train ride, I'm also learning that the Lake District is the setting of Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit, a story that I read over and over again as a kid. It's actually partly thanks to Beatrix Potter that the Lake District National Park exists in the first place. The author and illustrator was also a fierce conservationist, and when she died in 1943, she left 4,000 acres and 12 farms to be preserved in this area. I'm on a small bus now, on a route too vertical and windy for a train. And now we're going under all these like canopies of trees that are covering the road, like archways over us, dripping with water. It's easy to picture Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter hopping around the lush green farmland I'm passing through, popping into the hedges that line the roads like walls. The quaint architecture is a little asymmetrical, like it was thrown here by a playful artist. Adorable old stone farmhouses and pathways covered with moss meander alongside babbling brooks. I have to hang on to my bags as our bus flies uphill, speeding up narrow laneways. <laughs> wow, huge puddle. Wow, and now there's a huge body of water in front of us. Hills, mountains. Beatrix Potter wasn't the only person inspired by this landscape. Poets like William Wordsworth have written about it, and it's been the setting for several feature films. We climb on, up towards the clouds that rain on us, leaving lakes and quaint villages behind, until we get to my stop. 
So I'm up here, I'm up high, the air feels different. I wasn't expecting it to feel this remote. The grass here is so green and it's more rugged than I expected. Uh, there are waterfalls surrounding me and I'm up in the mountains and there's these really cool sheep. Their bodies are black, but they have white legs and a white face, as if they're wearing a little sweater vest. You can hear them maybe. And I think next to me, this is the sound of the slate mine that I'm about to visit. I don't quite know what I'm getting into here, but I follow signs for the Honister slate mine and I'm greeted by a man named Roland. All right then, folks. But I can call him Roly. Apparently, he's going to take me and a group of visitors deep into the heart of the mountain, which has 11 miles of man-made tunnels and caverns. It's the last working slate mine in England, but today, we're here to peer into its history. It's thought that people started taking slate from this mountain as long as 2,000 years ago. I put on a hard hat with a lamp on it and follow Roland into the fog. When I move, you move. No one hangs back. No one, okay? Am I nervous? Yeah, a little bit. I don't know how deep we're going into the earth. And he told us never to stay behind. Wow, we're right on the edge here. We hang on to slippery handrails and follow staircases further up until we come to a tiny waterfall, our entrance into the mine. There is a lot of water in front of us. Wow, it is wet. This is wet, yeah. Not only are we getting dripped on, we're walking through ankle-deep water as we hunch down to make our way through dark, narrow tunnels. It's down. Wow, so it immediately gets cooler just as soon as you walk in the oh, cave. Oh, it does. It changes dramatically, yeah. Roland says that slate was actually what the working class used to keep food cool before fridges were invented because it stays at a constant temperature. I shiver, and I'm wearing four layers in August. We duck through narrow tunnelways until we come to a series of steps that descend about 70 feet. Wow, it's this huge cave with all these different nooks and crannies, and it's all slate, so it's all dark. It turns out the old stone homes that I was so charmed by on my way here were made from this slate. Not only that, this slate is all over London. It's in Buckingham Palace, St. Paul's Cathedral, and the Ritz Hotel. Roland turns to a child standing beside me. Okay, anybody, anybody, how old are you? Nine. Nine, you'll do. Come on down here. Together, they demonstrate that hand drilling was a two-person operation, often carried out by fathers and their young children. One person would hold a heavy pole against the wall in just the right location, while the other would hammer it in with a sledgehammer to create a series of fault lines until the rock could be blasted by gunpowder. All this in candlelight. Do you have a choice? No. Folks, we're back in the day when you were born to what you did. Roland explains that before World War I, 80% of the wealth in this county came from mining. We're part of the 98%, aren't we? Up to this point, I'd been soaking up the beauty of the cave, but the work that went into making it is starting to hit me. In winter, the miners lived through 24 hours of darkness. They slept on the side of the mountain in stone huts that were 9 by 12 feet working grueling 12-hour days to feed their families. It's hideous, isn't it? But what we can celebrate is the character, the nature of these men. They were remarkable people. Back in the tunnels, it is incredible to think of people working here. Yes, there's beauty, but that, that history and that reality, to be down here, 
still can't understand it, but I can get closer to understanding it. It's incredible to get this perspective, and I think you know, this is why I travel, it's for perspective. I'm reminded in here of something that was told to me many years ago. You're born with personality. That's an accident of birth. But character is only born out of adversity. It's the only way it can be born. These men must have had an incredible character. As we leave the mine, Roland tells me that when I'm hiking around the Lake District, I'll find evidence of miners if I look for it. The huts they used to live in, the scattered rocks that don't match with the surface of the mountain. That just strikes me as amazing that people could be walking around this area and have no idea. They do. That's absolutely right. I mean, sometimes all that infrastructure, just little bits are left, but someone spent hundreds, thousands of hours just creating an environment so they can mine the rock. With soaking shoes, I head back down and wait for the last bus to Keswick. A local tells me to stand up on a green ledge to wave the bus down so it doesn't miss me. This time, as we pass by the stone walls and old farmhouses, I'm not thinking of words like adorable or quaint. I'm thinking of young men and their kids, chiseling slate out of the inside of a mountaintop. I get off the bus, yawning as I walk towards my accommodation. But perhaps knowing instinctively that I'll soon be gone, my feet take me just a little further, past the graveyard of a church with lichen climbing up old tombstones, through a cobblestone alley, then along a narrow hedgeway and across a field. Oh, hello, Lamb. Made it to this beautiful lake, and the sun is starting to set and it's an incredible sunset. Because I found myself in the center of a panorama of mountains, lake, and sky, along with sheep and crows and geese. The clouds are parting above me. I breathe in the golden hour, and I feel bittersweet, grateful to have stumbled on this scene at all, and a bit sad about how soon I'll be leaving. My thoughts are interrupted by the sense that someone's watching me. I'm making eye contact with a rabbit in the middle of a field. She's up on her hind legs, tall ears high up. We're just staring at each other. Oh, there she goes, hopping away with her little cottontail up in the air. This feels very appropriate for Beatrix Potter country, Peter Rabbit. Taking this encounter as a good omen, I take one last look at the setting sun and finally make my way back to my accommodation. Eventually, I climb into bed, but I want to hold on to the Lake District a little longer, so I read myself some Beatrix Potter as I fall asleep. This time, something she wrote a little later in her life. Thank God I have the seeing eye. That is to say, as I lie in bed, I can walk step by step on the fells and rough land, seeing every stone and flower and patch of bog and cotton pass where my old legs will never take me again. I Travel For is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with American Airlines, British Airways, and Visit Britain. If listening to Nora explaining the natural landscape made you want to travel to Great Britain, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can learn more about their adventures on our website, 
partners.slate.com slash I travel for. Music composed by Alexis Quadrado. I'm Hattie Pearson. Thanks so much for listening and please join us next time.